Hello and welcome back to Rock Band's podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Malaberti. Today we have a very special episode, Solo Beatles Part 2, maybe one of the most interesting chapters in the history of rock and roll, The Beatles in 1971. I've been uploading episodes on Fridays recently because I have so much to do right now, but I hope to get back to the Thursday grind soon. Don't worry. Uh, I love this episode, so please share it around this week. I think a lot of people might enjoy it. Um, We have a lot to talk about today from Paul's Ram, the concert for Bangladesh, John Lennon's Imagine. So I want to get right to it. Before we start, though, please subscribe to Rock Band's podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at Rock Band's Podcast. Share us with all of your rock and roll loving friends. It helps so much. All right, let's get to it. Rock Band's Podcast, Solo Beatles Part 2. Paul's first album, the self-titled McCartney, released in early 1970, was a hit. But like I said last week, critics and fans bought it mainly because it was one of the first ex-Beatle records. And when they listened to it, there was a general sense of disappointment. Sure, there was Maybe I'm Amazed, which is undoubtedly a classic song, but other than that, the album feels scattered and bare and not really all that impressive. There aren't many other standouts on it. The critics at the time were harsher. I mean, Melody Maker said, quote, with this record, Paul McCartney's debt to George Martin becomes increasingly clear, unquote. Paul was pretty disappointed with the response, and he took the criticisms pretty personally. As a result, he decided that he better make a follow-up record quickly. So he wrote some more songs, he auditioned some players, and he booked some time in a studio in New York and got started on what would become the Ram album. The recording of Ram wasn't all that easy, though. Paul was pretty anxious about putting out another record, considering the reception that he got the previous year, and considering the strength of John Lennon's Plastic Ono Band record and, of course, George Harrison's All Things Must Pass, which at the time was everywhere. As a result, Paul would take his time in the studio, and he kept postponing the release date. He even worked with a few different people in the control room, but... He was the executive producer on his album, and he wasn't very good at taking advice about when he should finish up the record, or when uh, a song had enough overdubs. Ram was shaping up to be a pretty strong album, though, and it has a definite theme. Paul was living in the countryside in Scotland for most of the time between the end of the Beatles and the recording of McCartney and Ram, so there's kind of a down-home, folky, acoustic-y sound on Ram with songs like Heart of the Country and Ram On. But listening back to this album, I'm shocked at how much hard rock there is. I mean, songs like Eat at Home, Monkberry Moon Delight, Oh Woman, Oh Why, which was the B-side of the single, and Smile Away are all really like riff-heavy, distorted guitar songs. The most talked about songs, though, on Ram were a few songs that many people consider to be attacks on the other Beatles. Ram opens up with a clear attack on John Lennon in the song Too Many People. Paul says in the song, quote, too many people preaching practices, and that was your first mistake. You took your lucky break and broke it in two. The reference was not really lost on anyone at the time, especially the latter lyric. Paul admitted that he was talking about his former songwriting partner when he later said, quote, I felt John and Yoko were telling everyone what to do, and I felt we didn't need to be told what to do. The whole tenor of the Beatles thing had been like to each his own, freedom. Suddenly it was, you should do this. 
It was just a bit of the finger wagging, and I was pissed off with it. So that one got to be a thing about them, unquote. While this was the only reference that Paul ever admitted was about his former bandmates, John believed that he heard secret messages all over Ram. Specifically on Too Many People, Dear Boy, and the other three Beatles were kind of all offended by a few references they thought were about them on the song Three Legs. Lennon later said of these hidden messages, quote, There are all these bits at the beginning of Ram, like too many people going underground. Well, that was us, Yoko and me. And you took your lucky break. That was considering we had a lucky break to be with him, unquote. Ram was released in early 1971 and actually produced two hit singles. Paul had himself a number one in the United States with his song Uncle Albert, Admiral Halsey, which was kind of, I consider to be a magical mystery tour, kind of Beatlesque Paul number. He later released Another Day, which was a top 10 in the UK and US. The album itself sold very well and got all the way to number two on the Billboard Top 200. Now, Two hit singles and number two on the album chart seems like Paul would have been redeemed from the lackluster viewing of McCartney in the eyes of the music press, but the opposite was true. Ram got absolutely skewered by critics. Rolling Stone said Ram was incredibly inconsequential and commented on how Paul needed John to rein in his this side of his music. The New Musical Express was even more direct, saying that Ram was, quote, an excursion into almost unrelieved tedium, the worst thing that Paul McCartney has ever done, unquote. Obviously, the critics were being a bit unfair to Paul, who really at the time was being blamed Uh, for breaking up the Beatles with his authoritarian streak, uh, which, as we know, is not a completely fair version of the story. But fans were pretty disappointed with the album, too. It just seemed like Paul could have done more. He wasn't surprising anyone like George did with a triple album full of great songs. And his music didn't seem to have the philosophical or artistic value of John Lennon's songs like Mother or Working Class Hero or God. I mean, there's no controversy. Nowadays, Ram is like considered to be one of Paul's best. I mean, and it's true. It's a fun record. It's really upbeat. Uh, There's some great songs on it. And I would have to agree that there are some real gems on both McCartney and on Ram, but there was this inescapable feeling of like a deep disappointment with Paul McCartney's music. It just didn't seem like it was up to par with what he could be doing. Paul was pretty crushed by the critical reviews, which he kind of started to take personally and believe. I mean, Paul was kind of living in a world uh, where everyone seemed to be in some way against him. Alan Klein got all three Beatles to be against him when it came to Beatle business. Um, George, Ringo, and John were all off playing together, uh, and, you know, they were all in agreement about Apple. The press blamed Paul for breaking up the Beatles because of John Lennon's Jan Wenner interview. Uh, And John really didn't help matters when he really slammed Paul in that same interview. And Paul really took what John was saying personally, and he took the criticisms personally, and he took the isolation from his bandmates personally. Paul remembered reading the interview, and he said, quote, I sat down and poured over every little paragraph, every sentence. Does he really think that of me? At the time, I thought, it's me. That's just what I'm like. He's captured me so well. I'm a turd. Then Linda said, now you know that's not true, unquote. Paul's anxiety wouldn't end quite yet because he was about to begin the biggest war the Beatles would ever have over Apple and the division of their empire. Paul was deeply against the appointment of Alan Klein to manage and head the Beatles' empire. He resented what Phil Spector did to let it be, and he wanted more control over what was going on at Apple and with the Beatles' music. 
Paul consulted for a long time with Lee Eastman, his father-in-law and lawyer, before deciding to take a pretty big risk. Now, I'll get into the legal battles next episode, but Paul wasn't just suing Alan Klein for taking too much money. Paul decided that he had to sue all three former Beatles in effort to officially dissolve the Beatles' legal partnership. Paul was taking the Beatles to court. Ringo Starr was considered to be the Beatle least likely to succeed after the breakup. That's not a criticism of Ringo. He's one of Rock's greatest drummers who played in Rock's greatest band, but he wasn't a prolific songwriter like John Lennon, Paul McCartney, and George Harrison. Ringo was writing bits and pieces here and there, and he added a strong song on Abbey Road, but it wasn't like George, who had been stashing away songs for half a decade, or Paul, who had musical ideas for every corner of every piece of music he ever made, or John, who was trying to be this outspoken artist. Ringo wasn't an activist, he wasn't a dark horse, and he wasn't a melodic genius. He was one of rock and roll's great drummers, and in the months after the Beatles' breakup, that's what he did best. Ringo drummed on pretty much every song on John Lennon's first album, and he played on a bunch of George's All Things Must Pass. He also released an album full of old standards and cover songs, but it wasn't really a commercial or even a rock and roll record, and it came out before the world even knew the Beatles had broken up. But the drummer kept busy. Ringo was spending a lot of his time working on other people's stuff, as I said, and acting in movies like Blind Man. Honestly, though, Ringo felt pretty lost. And without a path after the Beatles, for all those years, Ringo just loved being in a band, and now he didn't have one. He felt like the time had finally come to release something good. And somewhere in the All Things Must Pass sessions, he resurrected an old song that he'd started around the time of the White Album, entitled You Gotta Pay Your Dues. And he asked George Harrison to help him finish it up. George, who was really becoming an expert producer, produced the song. He really tidied it up and made it a complete work. Most notably, George added some superb electric guitar playing, writing a riff uh, for the intro of the song and adding a great guitar solo. He also rearranged a bunch of the lyrics, and Ringo and George settled on a new title, It Don't Come Easy. It Don't Come Easy was credit, credited solely to Richard Starkey, but it really should have been a Starkey-Harrison writing credit. Now, when it came time to record uh, the song, there was actually a few basic tracks that were laid down for It Don't Come Easy, and these basic tracks were pretty star-studded. Uh, the basic track that they used for overdubs was with Ringo Starr on drums, Klaus Vorman on bass, George Harrison on acoustic guitar, and Stephen Stills of Buffalo Springfield and Crosby Stills and Nash contributing a piano part. This is the track that they would use for the final cut. When they wrapped up recording It Don't Come Easy in early 1971, I think everyone sort of knew that it had some hit potential. And they were right. The song was a number one in Canada and a top ten in pretty much every other country, and it peaked at number four in both the UK and the United States. The song actually outsold Paul's Another Day, George's Bangladesh, and John's Power to the People, which were all singles in the charts at the time of It Don't Come Easy's release. Ringo Starr had a hit record, and he wasn't about to stop with one. As we've discussed, George Harrison had been riding pretty high. All Things Must Pass was a commercial and critical smash, and he had two hit singles under his belt. 
who's also writing and recording for so many people. He was producing one of Apple's signature signees, Badfinger, and he had the signature slide solos on their hit Day After Day. He was also producing Phil Spector's long-suffering wife, Ronnie Spector's album. But he would soon have to take a little break from producing because his time was about to be consumed with a new, more groundbreaking and urgent project. Ravi Shankar, the world's most famous Indian musician and one of George's closest friends, was deeply troubled by the current situation in Bangladesh. Bangladesh, which was at the time eastern Pakistan, had been calling for independence for some time, given their distinct national and cultural identity and their complete geographic separation from Pakistan. In 1971, a massive cyclone hit Bangladesh, devastating millions of people's lives, and the Pakistani government really failed to produce an adequate response, which led to a formal declaration of independence for Bangladesh. Pakistan responded by beginning a violent crackdown, and a war between Pakistan and the new state of Bangladesh began. The war was extremely violent, and coupled with the havoc wreaked by the cyclone, millions of people lost their homes, fled to India, were on the brink of starvation, or were killed. The situation in Bangladesh was a humanitarian emergency. Ravi Shankar, who had roots in the country, really wanted to do something to help the people of Bangladesh. However, he knew that his name alone couldn't raise enough money or awareness for the cause, so he asked his very famous friend, George Harrison, if there was anything he could do. Ravi said of this moment, quote, I was in such a sad mood, having read all this news, and I said, George, this is the situation. I know it doesn't concern you. I know you can't possibly identify. But while I talked to George, he was very deeply moved, and he said, yes, I think I'll be able to do something, unquote. A few ideas were tossed around, but quickly they landed on the idea of doing a big concert called Concert for Bangladesh, where George and some of his fellow musicians would play for free and all the proceeds would go to Bangladesh, along with a new single and a live album and a film of the concert. Now, if it sounds like this happened pretty quickly, it did. The idea of the concert came about in April, and they scheduled it for August 1st at Madison Square Garden. George was quickly consumed with planning, saying that he was spending 12 hours on, uh, a day on the phone talking to record companies, UNICEF, his fellow musicians, the concert venue, etc., to get this thing running smoothly. As the concert date grew closer, billed as George Harrison and Friends, it became clear that George might have bitten off a bit more than he could chew. First of all, he hadn't played live to an audience this big really since 1966, when the Beatles were still touring. He toured a bit with Delaney and Bonnie, but he was far from being the front man. He was a guitar player in the band of many. This would be a huge moment for George Harrison. He was a pop icon in 1971, and he was about to play a concert with pretty global ramifications. This was a hugely public event for somebody who kind of shied away from this type of publicity. In addition to George's nerves and the logistical headache that organizing this whole concert and making sure the money got to Bangladesh caused... Uh, another big problem was getting people to play. George had formed like a house band for the evening, made up of some of his friends like Jim Keltner on drums, Klaus Vorman on bass, Jesse Ed Davis on guitar, and members of Badfinger and some others. Uh, but the event needed some serious star power. So George asked friends like Eric Clapton, Bob Dylan, Ringo Starr, Billy Preston, Leon Russell to perform at the concert. As the concert got closer, it became less and less clear whether Clapton and Dylan were going to show up at all, though. 
Dylan had stopped touring like George in 1966. He played a one-off gig at the Isle of Wight two years prior in 1969, but generally Bob wasn't playing around much, and he was really nervous about playing the concert for Bangladesh. Bob was unresponsive and vague about the entire affair until, like, the day before, when they were rehearsing and walking around the venue, when Bob thought he was going to bail. George recalled this moment, saying, quote, Dylan stood on the stage, and it suddenly was a whole frightening scenario. He turned to me and said, Hey man, I don't think I can make this. I've got a lot of things to do in New Jersey. I was so stressed, I said to Bob, Look, don't tell me about that. I've always been in a band. I've never stood out front, so I don't want to know about that. I always tried to be straight with him, and he responded. But right up until he came on stage, I didn't know if he was going to come. Unquote. Eric Clapton was another problem altogether. Clapton wasn't really thinking about stage fright. He was so addicted to heroin during this period that nobody could get in contact with him, and nobody knew what condition he'd be in if he ever actually showed up. George, who was always very loyal to Clapton, refused to book another guitar player. But as time was ticking, George had to consider the possibility that Slohan may never show up at all. George was ready to have Peter Frampton replace Clapton until the day before, when he got word that someone wrangled up Eric and got him on a plane to New York although he was withdrawing pretty severely from his heroin addiction. When Clapton got to the venue, he was really out of it. He had flu-like symptoms, and nobody was sure if he was going to be able to stand on stage to play the songs the next day. So George decided that the only way to get Clapton better uh, was to find him some heroin so he could manage to play the show. Admittedly, this seems like some unnecessary stress when they could have just had Frampton sit in, but let's be honest, Clapton is probably worth the trouble. They couldn't find any heroin, but they got a methadone, which tamed Clapton's symptoms just enough to get him on stage that night. With the musicians ready, really in just the nick of time, George Harrison and friends got ready to play their two shows at Madison Square Garden, a 2.30 p.m. matinee and an 8 p.m. show. The show opened up with a pretty long set of Indian music with Ravi Shankar and others playing before the crowd saw some footage of the situation in Bangladesh. Then came time for the rock and roll, and George, wearing a white suit and playing a white Stratocaster, opened up the show with a nervous but energetic wah-wah from his latest album, followed by his hit My Sweet Lord. Then Billy Preston came out and played a song, followed by, you know, the biggest moment of the night, the half-Beatles reunion. Ringo came out full of energy and sang and drummed his way through his hit It Don't Come Easy. Interestingly, since the Beatles broke up, there was the speculation of whether or not they do a reunion, and it almost happened at the concert for Bangladesh. George invited all three of his former bandmates to play. Paul declined because he was still pretty upset over the current state of their business relationship and didn't want to be there because Alan Klein was going to be there. And John declined because George didn't want Yoko performing with him, although I think John could have been convinced. Then came a few more George songs, like Beware of Darkness, Here Comes the Sun, and While My Guitar Gently Weeps. The concert for Bangladesh version of Gently Weeps is one of my favorite moments in rock history. Even though it features kind of a lackluster guitar performance from Clapton, uh, Eric was playing the wrong guitar, didn't really have enough volume on it, not really the most confident playing I've ever heard, Uh, but Clapton and George's outro solo Uh, where they played an extended guitar solo, really doesn't disappoint, and I just love that moment so much. Then came the Bob Dylan set, which was also highly anticipated. Dylan played a lot of songs, actually. A Hard Rain is uh, is Gonna Fall, It Takes a Lot to Laugh, It Takes a Train to Cry, 
Blown in the Wind, Mr. Tambourine Man, and Just Like a Woman. The concert ends with George playing a magnificent something, and of course, the promotional single, Bangladesh. The concert for Bangladesh was a huge success. Critics loved it, and people couldn't believe how smoothly it went considering the rush of it all. George also became a pioneer in a way. This was the first rock and roll benefit of its time, where all the money went to a cause. Uh, the, ne- the next one of this scale really was Live Aid in 1985. Not to mention the concert and the single made so many people in the Western world familiar with the name Bangladesh, which, again, at the time it was East Pakistan, so the awareness that this concert spread was really huge. George played a remarkable show, and the ticket sales made over a quarter million, plus the millions that would be made from the film, the album. Despite the success of the concert, though, the next year of George Harrison's life would be consumed by the stress of making sure the money raised actually got to the suffering people of Bangladesh. John Lennon, always a bit of a jealous guy, pun intended, was in fact pretty anxious about the success of George Harrison in 1971, and even a bit jealous of Ringo's smash hit, It Don't Come Easy. He was less impressed with Paul's work, but Paul had scored himself three big hits since the Beatles broke up. We know that John had an insecure side, kind of a complex, and he definitely had some success as a solo artist, but his singles weren't topping the charts, uh, and his latest album, though artistically valuable, didn't really have the commercial value that he had hoped. With this in mind, John Lennon decided that it was time to make a hit record. John began working at his brand new home studio at Tittenhurst Park in Ascot outside of London, and he again decided to work with the creepy but talented Phil Spector, who would co-produce this album with John and Yoko. The core band for this album was John Lennon on guitar, piano, vocals, Alan White on drums, Klaus Vorman on bass, and Nicky Hopkins on piano and keyboards. Nicky Hopkins is known for his association with the Rolling Stones, the Kinks, the Who, Jerry Garcia Band. He's just a great piano player. The band cut some great tracks right off the bat. John resurrected Child of Nature, which he wrote in Rishikesh, and completely overhauled the lyrics and turned it into Jealous Guy, which is one of my all-time favorite John Lennon songs. And they add a lush string section, and John kind of gently whistles a solo in the middle of the song. Lyrically, there's quite a bit of speculation about what the song's actually about. John was known to write primarily for Yoko in this period, but there's some pretty undeniable parallels to his relationship with Paul, uh, and even some argue that this may be a message of remorse or apology to Cynthia, his former wife. Whatever it is, it's a classic song, Klaus adds a great bass part, and John's vocal is really strong. John also added some more lighthearted, upbeat songs like Crippled Inside and Oh Yoko, which is of course a love song Yoko Ono with a really great melody, and Phil Spector joining in on background vocals. He still has that introspective side to him too, with songs like How, and he doesn't forget about activism uh, on songs like Gimme Some Truth and I Don't Want to Be a Soldier Mama. Both songs feature some great sly guitar from George Harrison, who plays lead on half of the album. Now, we all know John Lennon isn't one to shy away from controversy, and he certainly doesn't on How Do You Sleep, a song directly aimed at his former bandmate Paul McCartney. John Lennon was really hurt by Paul's jabs at him on Ram, and he took it really personally, and Paul suing George, Ringo, and him really stirred the pot too. So morale was pretty low between the John, George, 
Ringo camp and the Paul camp at this point. However, Yoko was always a bit suspicious that John had a love for Paul that was more romantic than it was friendly or brotherly. Yoko said about this period, quote, I knew there was something going on there from his point of view, not Paul's. He was so angry at Paul, and I couldn't help wondering what it was really about, unquote. John was far more direct and cutting in his lyrics about Paul than Paul was about him. There's no vagueness at all. In fact, not just one or two lyrics are about Paul. The entire song is about Paul. The opening lyric is, So Sgt. Pepper took you by surprise, uh, followed by, Those freaks was right when they said you was dead. He criticizes Paul's music when he sings, The sound you make is Muzak to my ears. Muzak is like stock music or elevator music. And Paul's relationship with Linda when he says, jump when your mama tell you anything. Maybe the worst insult in the song is the line, the only thing you've done was yesterday, and since you're gone, it's just another day. Here he's saying that yesterday was Paul's only good song, and his latest single, Another Day, is trash, if that wasn't clear. Somehow the original lyric was way worse, though. John wanted the line to be, uh, the only thing you done was yesterday, you probably stole that bitch anyway accusing Paul of plagiarizing yesterday. Now, Alan Klein was so worried that Paul would sue John uh, for this accusation and win, so he convinced John to take that part out of the song, so he just decided to criticize another day. Ringo, who had the best relationship with Paul of the three, was really not happy with John's lyrics, and he told them that he was going too far. George, on the other hand, contributed an extended guitar solo to How Do You Sleep, which was an effective endorsement of every word of the song. John made it even clearer that the song was about Paul when he included a photo of him holding a pig by the ears on the inside sleeve of the album, which was uh, really him imitating Paul, who was holding a bighorn sheep by the horns on his cover of Ram. John would later claim that it was all just a big misunderstanding, it was just a bit of fun, and getting caught in the heat of a moment. A few months after the release of the album, he said, quote, I wasn't really feeling that vicious at the time. It was not a terrible, vicious, horrible vendetta. I used my resentment and withdrawing from Paul and the Beatles and the relationship with Paul to write a song. I don't really go around with those thoughts in my head at, all the time. I'm really attacking myself, but I regret the association. Well, what's to regret? He lived through it, unquote. Paul was hurt, no question. It's a strong record made even stronger by the title track, Imagine. Everyone knows Imagine. There's so much to say about it. It's one of the greatest, most important pop songs ever written. Lyrically, it's actually not that typical of John's songs, and that's because John took a lot of the inspiration of Imagine from a poem in Yoko Ono's 1964 book, Grapefruit. The song is really simple, just John on piano, Klaus on bass, and Alan White on drums, and then some strings. And right away, when John begins working on it, people knew it was going to be a big song. I mean, just the melody, the simplicity of it, you just hear it once, and it's like you... you memorize it for the rest of, of your life. The lyrics are pretty controversial, especially at the time because of the communist overtones in the song. Lennon was already considered to be like this leftist extremist by like the, the American press, and he had been pretty sympathetic towards Chairman Mao in a recent interview, which was kind of controversial. John said about the lyrics, quote, imagine, which says, imagine that there was no more religion, no more country, no more politics, is virtually the communist manifesto. Even though I'm not particularly a communist and I do not belong to any movement, 
There is no real communist state in the world. You must realize that. The socialism I speak about is not the way some daft Russian might do it or the Chinese might do it. That might suit them. Us, we should have a nice British socialism, unquote. Imagine was the lead single off of the album of the same title, which featured a cloudy Polaroid of John Lennon on the cover. Both the album and the single were huge hits, topping charts all over the world. John, who wrote this album with the hope of having a commercially and artistically valuable piece of music, definitely changed his sound and his look. He shaved his beard, cut his hair. Everything about him was more sellable. However, he wrote more than just a hit record. With Imagine, he wrote one of the most classic, beloved songs ever written, and I think people will be listening to it in 50 or even 100 years. Now, if you want to learn more about Imagine, there's a great documentary about the making of the album and the song called John and Yoko, Above Us Only Sky. Great footage of all of uh, the making of it. You got the footage of George Harrison playing slide guitar. You have, uh, you know, pretty much everything John was up to in 1970 and 1971. So definitely check that documentary out. 1971 was a big shift in John Lennon's life. He was no longer just former Beatle, John Lennon. He now had a timeless classic under his belt, and the U.S. government was pretty convinced that he was an agent hell-bent on social upheaval. But John also closed a major chapter in his life, unknowingly. On August 31st, 1971, John Lennon got on a plane from London to New York City, and he left England for the last time. Given the troubles that John had securing a visa in the last decade of his life, John had to stay in America or risk not getting let back in. As a result, John never got to see Liverpool or his Aunt Mimi ever again. He didn't know it at the time, but New York City would be John Lennon's home for the rest of his life. Hey, thank you so much for listening to Rock Band's podcast. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Next week, we're talking about 1972-1973. That's Ringo's first album, Living in the Material World. Band on the Run, uh, and so much more. It's a really interesting period for the Beatles. They go from being these huge pop stars to starting to become less and less popular. So listen to those albums, and don't forget to subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Follow Rock Band's Podcast on Instagram, at Rock Band's Podcast, and share us with all of your rock and roll-loving friends. Until next week, 